Well, Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are the letters of the Lord Jesus Christ to the churches. Through these seven letters, we receive instruction in our time and place about how the Lord Jesus Christ, who is alive and who is present with us here this morning, how he sees all that is going on in our churches, and particularly for us, this local congregation. And so these letters are invaluable to us, and it's great that from time to time we come back and spend time in these letters together to listen to what the Lord Jesus Christ has to say to us, to encourage us where we're doing well, to challenge us and call us to repentance where we are not following our good shepherd. And so last week, we dug into Revelation chapter 2, and we didn't begin with Ephesus like the chapter does, but instead we jumped ahead to Smyrna. And as we looked at the church in Smyrna, we saw that the Lord Jesus Christ had no word of repentance for this church, but only a word of encouragement because they were a church that was suffering. They were a church that was suffering tribulation, poverty, and slander, as it says in chapter 2, verse 9. And we're going to continue on that theme this morning as we continue to look into what it is that the Lord Jesus Christ is looking for in his church regarding the cardinal virtues of faith, hope, and love. We're beginning with faith, looking at that virtue in the church, and how the faith of the churches and the faith of our church is going to be tested by the enemy. That the enemy is going to test our faith both internally and externally. The external test that we face, the testing from without, the persecutions that come against us as Christians for being faithful to the teaching and the commands and the lifestyle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can have the name of Christian, but fit in with the world around you, then you can avoid persecution. You can be called a Christian and most people will leave you alone. But if you actually say things like the Lord Jesus Christ said, and you actually live your life the way the Lord Jesus Christ lived his life, then you can be sure that the world will persecute you. That was the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you look at yourself and you say, well, everybody loves me. Nobody ever says anything bad about my church or my group or my family. Well, then you might have an indication there that you're not following the Lord Jesus Christ that you have the name of Christian without the reality. Because our promise is, is that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And this is the enemy trying to intimidate us. You see, throughout Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we have references to Satan, the devil. More so than probably any other part of the New Testament, there's a concentrated emphasis on the attacks of Satan against the church. And so Satan wants to intimidate us through persecution, this is how our faith is tested from without. But Satan also is a master at infiltration. So if he can't intimidate us with the threat of persecution, what he does then is he sends in false workers, false teachers who will subtly introduce destructive heresies, as Jude writes his letter to the church. This infiltration of the false teachers from within is also an attack from Satan. Now you've got your Bible open to Revelation 2, but before we actually dig into the text, let's look at that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Back up in your Bible from Revelation to Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, and notice how the 
infiltration of the enemy is described here at the beginning of chapter 11. This is not unique in the New Testament. I've put up here before on the PowerPoint and talked with you about all of the places in the New Testament where we are warned about the infiltration of false teachers. This is one of those passages that's most relevant, I think, to what we'll be looking into this morning in Revelation. And it says there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. They are tolerating, they're putting up with, bearing with, false gospels, false Christs, and false Holy Spirit. That is a danger that Paul saw in the Corinthian church in the first century. It's a danger that continues throughout the New Testament and throughout church history. Look also a little bit further down in the chapter. Notice verse 12. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, What I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. So these are false apostles. That's what he says. Such men are false apostles. They want to boast like they're working like the apostles. But Paul has to actively work. He's continuing to undermine their claims and to show them to be false apostles. He says, They are deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. The same spirit that was speaking through the Apostle Paul here, the spirit of Jesus, now speaks to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And we'll continue this morning looking at how the faith of these churches, these seven, are tempted from without with this intimidation, and they're tempted or tested from within with this infiltration of false teachers. So turn back again then to Revelation chapter 2. And let's take a look at chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, reviewing what we covered last week, where Jesus speaks to the church in Smyrna and he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan... Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So you see Satan mentioned in verse 9. You see the devil mentioned in verse 10. He is the one who is behind these attacks on the faith of the church. And Satan's goal is to put social and economic and political pressure upon Christians in order to demonstrate that Christians don't really love God. But that instead, what Christians love is the peace and the blessing 
and the benefits that God can give. Now, sadly, that's true for some so-called Christians. They don't really love God. What they love is all of the blessings, all the benefits that they can get from God. And so when Satan attacks the faith of those Christians, they are readily enough able to fold under that pressure and say, well, I'm not going to talk like Jesus. I'm not going to act like Jesus. I'm not going to love God. I can pretend to it and I can have a different Jesus that the world will accept that will allow me to avoid persecution. So Satan has a hard time believing that anyone actually loves God for himself and he thinks that we're all just in this for what we can get out of it. And he wants to show that we're just in this for what we can get. And if the going gets tough, then people will deny Christ just like he thought Job would. But Job didn't. And Job loved God, not because God blessed him, but because he had a heart of genuine worship. And so God wants to reveal the heart of genuine worship. Satan wants to reveal a heart of fake worship. And sadly, both are revealed at times. But for the believer, we are not intimidated, we do not fear suffering because we have the love of God in our hearts and our faith is sincere and genuine and when it's tested, it is shown to be such. That's the church at Smyrna, that's the message and the encouragement and the enemy who was behind this attack is Satan. We'll see him show up again and again. Now, Last week we covered the church in Smyrna, so this week we're going to continue on with the church in Pergamum in verses 12 and following. Go ahead and follow along in your Bibles as we read the message to the church in Pergamum. See the seven churches? We started here with Smyrna. We'll get back to Ephesus soon. Now we're going up to Pergamum, and let's hear what the Lord Jesus Christ says to this church. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So here the church in Pergamum, it receives both commendation and condemnation. They are commended for having a faith like that in Smyrna that is not intimidated by persecution, that is not folding under the pressure, the social, economic, political pressure that is coming upon them where they dwell, and that is identified as the place of Satan's throne, Pergamum. We have here in the lower right... The Pergamum altar, this is in a museum in Berlin. I've actually been to that museum with my wife a couple of decades ago, and we stood here and saw the Pergamum altar. This was an altar to Zeus. Zeus was worshipped at this altar that is still intact and has been restored and and built uh, in the museum there. It stood on this Acropolis, this hill, 
And here you've got the model of what the Acropolis in Pergamum would have looked like in the days that this letter was received by the church. And the church in Pergamum is notable for its location. Jesus Christ's first words to the church are not that I know your deeds, like he says to so many of the churches, but instead he says, I know where you dwell. The most notable thing about the church is its location. And the most notable thing about its location is that this is where Satan's throne was. Now, what does that mean? Why is Pergamum the location of Satan's throne? Well, many Bible teachers have thought that it is a reference to this throne of Zeus, this temple of Zeus that was there in Pergamum, that was at the heart of the worship, the false worship, the idolatrous worship in the city. And that perhaps much of the pressure and the persecution that was coming upon the church that led to the death of this man, this Christian, Antipas, might have been coming from this cult of Zeus and the paganism that was centered here in Pergamum. Others have said, well, no, I mean, Zeus was worshipped in other places and the pagans had temples and altars everywhere. And saying, well, not so much is the throne of Satan the altar at Pergamum to Zeus, but instead, other Bible teachers identify this as the throne of Satan because of the emperor worship and the fact that this was Rome's official seat of government in Asia. So this is kind of like the capital city for the Roman government in this part of the world. And perhaps it's that connection with Rome that is the reason why Satan is enthroned in Pergamum. We don't know exactly why Pergamum is Satan's throne, but we do know that it was Satan's throne and that this posed a tremendous challenge and a tremendous threat to Christians who were dwelling in the lion's den, so to speak. The church had to face Satan on his home turf here, go into his own throne room, and to stand firm for Christ. Now, the church is commended for its faithfulness, just like Smyrna. Out of the seven churches, there is no church that is told that it failed the test when they were tempted to deny Christ through intense persecution. But the persecution that comes against the church, you look throughout church history, not just these seven churches, but you look at all of church history, the church has stood faithful under persecution throughout its life, most notably. Have there ever been people who denied Christ? Sure, there have been those who faltered when the moment came. But if you look at the general trend, if you look at Christianity and the health of the churches, this is an area where the church has been strong throughout its life, and it continues to be strong today in places like in the Arab world or in communist China. Persecution is not able, on most cases, to intimidate God's people, but instead they stand firm. That's encouraging. For us who have not faced a lot of persecution, we might think, well, how will we ever stand? Well, we have great examples for us throughout church history of people who were able to stand. And whatever God calls you to suffer, he will give you the strength to suffer. Don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. Don't be worried. He will be with you, just as he has been with all of these churches. And if God calls us to suffer, our children and our grandchildren, we can have good confidence that if they are living their life according to God's word, that if they are filled with the Holy Spirit, if they love the Lord Jesus Christ truly, they will stand when their faith is tested as will you and I. 
That's encouraging. That they held fast my name. Notice that it says there, you did not deny my faith, in verse 13, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So the lion, roaring and prowling about, killed Antipas, a notable witness for the Lord Jesus Christ here in this city of Pergamum. As we think about Pergamum, I want you to think about Antipas. You see the picture that I have here up on the screen is a bull, a metal bull that has a door that is in it and then a fire that is placed underneath it. Church history records for us that this is the way that Antipas met his end. He was placed inside the metal bull and then they built the fire underneath and he was burned. They stood faithful as they were in the place of Satan's throne. They had personal loyalty to Jesus Christ, even to the point of death. The intense pressure that was put upon them, they withstood that. All of them were facing pressure. One of them had to go all the way and die, and that was Antipas. This is all that we know about him. In the Bible, he's not mentioned outside of this verse. As we said, church history records that that was the method of his death, but we really don't have any details about this man except that the Lord Jesus Christ writes his name down as my faithful witness. Now that is an awesome title to receive from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ identifies himself as the faithful witness in chapter 1. And not only is Jesus Christ the faithful witness, but when we can also be faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ and, and be like him in that moment of trial, that moment of testing. The pain lasted for a moment, but the glory lasts forever and ever. Remember that when you face this kind of pressure. But the church in Pergamum, though it was so strong, and so blessed, holding fast to the name of Christ under this kind of persecution, they do receive a word of condemnation as well. Notice there in verse 14, the tone changes. And he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also... You have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So here's the correction. Here's the rebuke. That though they had not denied Christ's name, they were strong against the persecution, the intimidation. They were not standing strong against the infiltration of the enemy through false teaching. And this is sadly the case throughout church history as well. While the church usually is strong against the external threat, the church often is very weak against the internal threat of false teaching. It's true in the first century, it's true in the 21st century, and it's been true all throughout church history. That's why these letters are here, to exhort, to reprove, to rebuke the church for putting up with, tolerating false teaching in its midst. And Christ is not pleased when we tolerate false teaching. This is one of Satan's tactics, and it's his more successful tactic. He is greater with guile than he is with force. 
And this is true also in human warfare. Force is very important when it comes to human warfare, but strategy, guile, is even more important in warfare, the plan for the battle. And here, Satan, with his deception, is able to infiltrate and destroy the church through false teaching. Pergamum is one of these churches that was failing and falling in this area. Satan thinks if you can't beat them, join them. That's what he does. He can't beat the church down, but he can join the church. And he does that often. False teachers in the church are like cancer cells in your body. They will kill you. They will destroy you unless you destroy them. You don't remove the cancer from your body, then the body will die. And that's what false teaching and false teachers are like in the body of Christ. They must be removed. They cannot be tolerated. You can't say, well, it's just a little bit of cancer. The rest of me is just fine. You leave the little bit of cancer and it spreads and it grows and it kills and it destroys. The church always forgets that. The church looks and says, well, I look healthy. I feel healthy. Everything's okay. We don't have to do anything about these cancer cells. Everything will be fine. And then it's not fine. And the church dies. So let us take warning this morning about the infiltration of the enemy in our ranks. Let's take a look at the heresy itself. Jesus describes this heresy as the teaching of Balaam. Now, in order to understand that, you need to be able to go back and look in the book of Numbers about who was Balaam and what did he do. Recently, we did that in our adult Sunday school. We were going through the law and the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and we spent a fair amount of time on Balaam. And it's great to look into the life and the teaching of Balaam that we're not going to do this morning. But I encourage you to go back and and look at Balaam's strategy, how he was able to deceptively bring about the destruction of Israelites by pretending to be their friend. He infiltrated when he couldn't directly attack them. He taught Balak. He was a teacher who put stumbling blocks before the sons of Israel that led them into sin. And that's what false teaching does. False teaching is not just on a theoretical level, but that theoretical false teaching works itself out into a practical lifestyle that is ungodly and displeasing to the Lord. How did it work with Balaam? Well, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And the same way it was working in the Old Testament with Balaam and the sons of Israel is the same way that Satan was doing it in the New Testament with the church, that the church in Pergamum, they lived in a culture that was completely pagan, just like the Israelites were surrounded by pagans and they had to be distinct and holy and separate from their idolatry and from their immorality, so also the Christian church planted in Pergamum, had to be separate from the culture around it with regards to its idolatry and its immorality. But holiness, separateness, is something that the church has struggled with throughout its history and continues to struggle with today. And so often the church becomes conformed to the world that is around it and starts to adopt the morality of the world that is around it, starts to live the lifestyle 
that the world around is living. And you find divorce in the church. You find adultery in the church. You find pornography in the church. You find strife and jealousy and envy and bitterness and division in the church, just like it's in the world around us. And this is the work of Satan to take away the church from following the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he has instruments who do that, instruments who will mix together sound teaching with worldly teaching and make it sound more true than the truth itself and will convince unsuspecting Christians to listen to their sermons, to read their books, to go to their seminars, which are actually different from the spirit of the New Testament. And they preach a different gospel than what is preached in the New Testament. And Christians follow it. And Christians are deceived by it and misled by it. And Christians put up with it. And any church that does not actively call out false teachers by name and warn the flock about the false teaching that is the work of Satan to infiltrate in our day, in our place, in our location, in our families, is failing to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and is failing to protect the flock from the one who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy the flock of God. To not publicly correct false teaching is to be unfaithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and to be worthy of his rebuke and censure. You must always remember that. Revelation chapter 2, the message to the church in Pergamum, is that they have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. It's not the whole church. It's just some. I was like, well, we might disagree, but we can get along. We can agree to disagree. You know, you're teaching what you teach. We have a little different view but it's all within the pale of orthodoxy and we're all brothers. Jesus says, you church are responsible for the some who are among you who are teaching these things. He calls the whole church to repent for the sake that some among them are teaching these things. Now you can't stop people from teaching false teaching, but you can stop them from teaching it here. And you can say, they have no part with us, and we are not with them. And we're drawing a distinction between what is true and what is false, those who are truly following the Lord and those who are not. That's what Christ is calling the church to. You have some in your church, Jesus tells the church, who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent. If not, I'm going to deal with it. I'll come to you soon and will war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now here in Revelation 2 and 3, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to deal with issues in the church is repeatedly brought up. And I think this is not to be taken as an example for what he's going to do throughout church history. I don't think we should expect that if we don't take action against false teaching within our congregation, that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come and bring some special judgment upon the false teachers here. These judgments that are here against the false teachers are a sign and an indication that are given for all time so that we might know that Jesus Christ will come and he will deal with the false teachers and he will give to everyone according to their deeds 
at the second coming. These comings of Christ to judge are a foretaste, a picture, an example, a warning about the future coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he will deal with every false teacher that is in the world today. The trumpet might sound. We might get changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye and get caught up to be with the Lord. And then the day of judgment begins. And then everyone at the end will stand before Jesus Christ and will give an account for what they have done, whether good or bad, whether they've been a faithful shepherd or whether they've been those who are fleecing the flock and leading the flock away from the gospel. He will deal with false teachers. And his historical judgments are an indication of his inevitable future judgment that Christ sees, he knows, and he cannot be mocked. If you do not listen to what he says, he will deal with you personally. That's what is the message of these historical judgments. It's just like in the Old Testament. When God judged Korah for his rebellion against Moses, that was not setting a precedent that every time someone rebelled against the God-established authority in Israel, that God was going to open up the earth and swallow them. That was not the point. The point was, this establishes God's attitude, this establishes God's judgment, sin, death, God's judgment. That's what's going on here for the church. And so when God judges the Nicolaitans in Pergamum, and when God judges Jezebel and her children in Thyatira, it's not saying, well, that's what God's going to do every time throughout church history when somebody doesn't repent of their false teaching. It's saying God has shown what his attitude is towards false teachers. Men like Norman Vincent Peale in a previous generation Men like Joel Osteen in our generation. God sees the heart. He knows the deeds. He is going to judge every teacher very strictly. Have they faithfully fed the flock? Have they preached the true gospel? Have they compromised with the world in order to be acceptable in the world? And his attitude is clear in his historical judgments. And now we, who receive the word of Christ, who understand the attitude of Christ, who have the spirit of Christ, we are now responsible for how we act. Will we call out false teaching? Or will we be letting someone else do it? Will we be wishy-washy? Say, well, I don't want to focus on those negative things. I just like to focus on the positive truth. And I only preach what is the right thing to believe. I don't want to spend my time confronting those who are teaching the wrong thing. Well, where'd you get that from? If that's your philosophy of ministry, is that the philosophy of ministry of Paul? Is that the philosophy of ministry of Jesus? Or are you compromised? because it's unpopular. You'll lose prestige. You'll lose influence. You might lose congregants. You might lose money. This is a real problem in our area. And I have a responsibility for those pastors and for those churches that won't speak up on this. I have a responsibility to go to them and say, why aren't you calling out false teaching? Why aren't you being faithful to the Lord's command? Because Christ calls the whole church to responsibility for the whole church. You have some there in southeast Nebraska, Timothy, who are teaching falsehood. 
And yeah, you can talk about it in general terms from your pulpit, but have you ever gone to those pastors and those churches and said, why are you teaching this? Do you know what the Bible says? You shouldn't be teaching this. In fact, you shouldn't be a pastor. You need to step down and let a godly man take over. But, I don't think that's my place, but maybe it is. Maybe it is our place. We have a responsibility for the flock of God. And Jesus says, you have some there who hold the teaching. Repent, therefore. And if you don't repent, I'm going to come soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice he's not going to war against us. He's going to war against them. You say, wow, good. I'm off the hook. Now I don't have to go talk to them because he's not going to war against me if I don't go talk to them. Well, do you love your neighbor? Do you love the church? Do you love the pastor who's compromised? Do you want him to have Jesus Christ go to war with him? Or do you want to take the opportunity to go and talk with him and exhort him and encourage him, rebuke him? Whether he listens to you or not, you've at least done what you were supposed to do out of love for your neighbor so that he might avoid the judgment and the wrath of God. It's just a matter of love. I don't want the false teacher to be warred against. I want him to repent and be saved. I don't want the compromised evangelical to have no reward at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want him to have a full reward. And I want him to be building up the church and making a church that is healthy and strong and well-fed and protected, that is walking in the truth. This is what Christ wants. And if I love Christ, that's what I want. And I'll do it, not for glory, not for divisiveness, but as a servant. That's what we're all called to. I need your encouragement. I need your example, and you need mine. It's not easy to hold the line. It's not easy to love. It's not easy to make a distinction between true and false within the church, and the church has failed at it over and over and over again, and and that's why we're in the sorry state that we are. Repent is what Jesus says. Can you hear him? Is he speaking to you? Do you have an ear to hear? what the Spirit of Christ is saying this morning. Well, in the time that we have, I also want to look at the church in Thyatira. Take a look at what Jesus says to the next church in our circuit here. We'll save that for another time. The lampstand in Thyatira is commended for being strong in good deeds, but also it is condemned for being weak in this area of tolerating false doctrine, false teachers. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Same problem. The Nicolaitans, what were they doing? They were teaching the Christians in Pergamum 
to eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality, and that's what Jezebel is doing in Thyatira. I gave her time to repent, Jesus says, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. That's intense. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, when you're thinking about dealing with false doctrine in the church, recognize that when you're dealing with a false teacher, you're dealing with someone who's teaching a different Christ, a different gospel, who has a different spirit, someone who is teaching immorality as acceptable. And we have churches like that around. Go into Lincoln and see the churches that are teaching that the sexual sins that the Bible condemns are just fine. And that it's okay to murder babies in the womb. These are the same type of people that Jesus is talking about here. The Jezebels, the Nicolaitans, who are leading unsuspecting Christians astray with the false teaching. But then you also have the problem of the churches that tolerate those things, that do not call it out, that won't speak against it, that just want to talk positive messages. And they're faithful in teaching the truth, but they're not faithful in confronting error. And so we have two jobs. One, we've got to go to those who are faithfully teaching the truth, but who are not confronting error, and say, you need to repent. You need to change your philosophy of ministry. You need to change the way you preach and get in line with what Jesus wants your church to be. That's job number one. Job number two, that we go to the false teachers, the ones with the rainbow flags, and we tell them, you are a false teacher. You don't belong in ministry. You are a wolf in sheep's clothing and you need to get saved. So make sure you differentiate between the false teacher and the one who is tolerating the false teacher. You don't treat them the same. We don't have the same message for both of them. That's what Jesus Christ is calling the church to. In Pergamum and in Thyatira, he's calling the faithful church that is not into these deep things of Satan, as they're called, to call out the false teaching and to stop tolerating it. Christians who work together with false teachers, are hurting the church. And they need to repent and stop it. And these false teachers, well, Jesus makes it clear what he thinks about them. But notice that Jesus gave Jezebel time to repent. Jesus loves Jezebel. 
He wants her to be saved. He wants her to repent. She has not committed the unpardonable sin. Christ is giving her an opportunity. But when the Jezebels who are in Lincoln today and the Jezebels who are in the churches in the rural areas around us, when they don't repent, when God sends messengers to them and warns them and tells them and they don't listen, well then judgment is inevitable. And Christ is coming. And the false teachers who are in the pulpits around us, Christ will kill them. And they will face the second death. This is real. This is what Christ speaks. It's intense. We're not playing games. He's not playing games. Maybe we are. He is the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. He is the one who has the authority over sickness. He is the one who has the authority over death. He is the one who is going to judge each one of us according to our works. Turn with me to the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 18. Revelation 18 verse 6. Speaking of the future judgment, the coming judgment of Babylon, the call goes out, pay her back, pay Babylon back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup that she mixed. Christ is going to judge the world according to its deeds. Look at chapter 20, verses 12 and 13. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Finally, chapter 22, verse 12. The Lord Jesus Christ from heaven speaks to us here this morning and he says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I see him. I see him at the right hand of God. I see him waiting until the moment God says, now, go. And he will come. And he will judge every single person according to what we have done. Let's do what he says. Do deeds of love towards one another, towards the whole church, towards false teachers to atheists, secularists. Let's go and tell them Jesus is Lord and he's coming. Bow your heads with me. Father, I thank you for the congregation that you have surrounded me with. 
I thank you for faithful Christians who believe your word and who do the deeds of Jesus, who speak the words of Jesus, who have the spirit of Christ and who love the gospel that the apostles preached. And yet, Lord God, you know that we are not perfect in our faith. We have not reached maturity. There are parts in our congregation, members. There's elements of our spiritual ethos together as a whole that are not what it's supposed to be. And so, Lord God, we ask you to do the work in our hearts, first of all. May we remove from our eye the log so that we might be able to see clearly the speck that is in our brother and sister's eye to go and serve them and to love them, to exhort them, to encourage them, to be ministers of Christ, one and all. Lord, show us the good works that you have prepared for us. Keep us from the temptation, the worldliness that envelops so much of Christianity. May we stand apart as holy, fully assured in all of your will, sanctified body, soul, and mind. And then may we be fit instruments to bear your truth to everyone that you put into our lives out of a sincere love for the good of others that they might escape judgment, they might escape your wrath and receive the mercy and the grace that brings everlasting joy and everlasting life for our good and our neighbor's good and for your eternal glory in Jesus. Amen.